The following is a message from Charles Telfer at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474, wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474. As we remain standing, let's turn in God's word to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. I'll read the last line of Deuteronomy 31 to give us a bit of an introduction. We've been sitting, most of us, all morning. It's good to stand. In the Eastern churches, they stand throughout the service many times. So let's listen to this long portion of God's word in reverent attention as we stand before the Lord. We read in Deuteronomy 31, the last verse, verse 30, which says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. You drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But... Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. 
He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague, poisonous pestilence. I will set the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents, and the cruel venom of asps. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. And then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven, and I swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all the words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. 
And by this word you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. May God's blessing be on the reading of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Almighty Lord God in heaven, as citizens of this land, we pray for our land, for south, the southwestern United States. We pray that you give us rain, Lord God. We pray that you'd refresh us and send the dew. And we ask that you'd send the rain of your spirit like showers now upon our needy and thirsty souls. We ask, Lord, trusting that you can do far beyond what we can ask or even think. Lord, turn our hearts to yourself and we will be turned. Do not leave us to our own native habits of mind, but turn us evermore to yourself, Lord. We need you. Stir up our faith, we pray. Thank you for joining us to Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is stirring how Moses, the great author of the Pentateuch, ends his career. He does so with poetry. For poetry, it seems, is for real men. Moses is a man's man. A prince in Egypt. Struck a man dead when he was young. Went out into the howling wilderness of Sinai and fought against shepherds there. He became, in God's good time, a commander and general of armies, a legislator for a nation. As we read in Acts 7, he was a man mighty in his words and in his deeds. And yet he was a man who was a poet. He finishes his career with these two poems, one in here in 33 and then the other in 32. Moses knows the power of words, and many of us are going to spend a lifetime, and I trust you and I both will be people who appreciate the power of words. And perhaps we could use a refresher course in poetry. If for no other reason than much, if not most, of the Old Testament is written in poetry. Our poem here in Deuteronomy 32 is something of a summary of the whole book of Deuteronomy. It has a number of the themes that we see throughout this book. And as you probably know, this book of Deuteronomy has a structure that's similar to those treaty agreements, those, those covenants that took place in Moses' day, back in the 2nd century BC, between a suzerain and a vassal, these agreement treaties. And you'll see even in this particular poem the major elements of those covenants we see here. So, for example, in verse 1, we see the invocation of witnesses. It's not an invocation of other gods, but an invocation of heaven and earth as the witnesses. We see then the recital of the sovereign's acts of grace. We see this in, chapter, in verse 2 and following. We see then the stipulations of the covenant, this call to give exclusive attachment to the sovereign and not to be distracted by foreign alliances. We see this in verse 16 and following. And then, of course, there is a list of the sanctions that will come upon those who uh, break covenant. And we see this very graphically in uh, uh, verses 23 and following. We saw that earlier in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. And then, uh, as an end of the covenant, there is an arrangement for the, uh, for the uh, reminding the, the coming generations of the stipulation of that covenant. And so that's what this whole poem is. It's to be taught, as we see uh, in um, 
verse 46, it's to be taught to the next generation. And this is the primary purpose of the song, as we see in chapter um, 31, verse uh, 21. Now, there is all kinds of, this is a large text, there is all kinds of interesting things that could take our attention at every exegetical level, right down to the, to the question of textual criticism. There's some interesting issues there. There are uh, a number of uh, fine parallelisms here in this text. There's some uh, questions over who is the reference towards the end of the, the, uh, the poem, whether we're talking about Israel or the enemies. A number of issues we could talk about. But for, tonight, uh, for this morning, I'd like you to focus with me on two main lines, two, two of, of Moses' great themes that he's, uh, that he's playing for us in this particular symphony, and both of uh, which have to do with our relationship with God. Francis Schaeffer was uh, a man who meant a whole lot to many of us, many of us older Christians. It sounds like he's almost forgotten today. But Francis Schaeffer was a man uh, who suffered from depression in a very profound way. And the uh, story has it that uh, on occasion he would go uh, outside his chalet in, in Libri in Switzerland where he ministered. And he would stand on the, uh, the porch and he would sing, Jesus loves me with all his heart, just belted out as a way of preaching to himself. Very profound uh, song, right? Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Little ones belong to him. They are weak, but he is strong. And that's what Moses is focusing on here and I'd like for us to reflect on today. First, we see here that we are weak. And secondly, we see that he is strong. We are weak, but he is strong. The picture that Moses is painting of us weak people here, of God's people here, is not a pretty one. This psalm is intended to be a reminder to the people, to be in their face, that they are weak. They are disabled. That they tend to go astray when left to ourselves. That we are incompetent to keep the terms of the covenant when left to ourselves. It's a, it's a humbling text. If you look at chapter 31, verse 19, he says there, he says he's writing this song, why? As a witness for me, God says, against the people of Israel. The next verse, he says, they will turn to other gods and serve them, despise me, break my covenant. At the end of verse 21, I know what they are inclined to do, inclined to do even today. They will fall away because they are so weak. Now, If this is the beginning of the covenant, then it's a rather inauspicious beginning, is it not? This is the beginning, and he says, you're going to stray, you're going to fall away. It doesn't bode well for what's happening. So then look at the verse 46 and 47. he's, He's pleading with the people there. He says, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land you're going over the Jordan to possess. So how should we understand this? So we have to be careful how we say this. But we can say that on a, on a geographical level, that Israel maintains its status in the land based on its performance. That in this outward way, as a particular um, nation, that the way that they perform, 
the way that they respond to, uh, to the requirements of the treaty will determine whether they stay or whether they're ejected from uh, the good land. And can we not say that that, in some way, at some level, is parallel to the arrangement between God and the first human beings? Some way. Uh, obey and stay, disobey and out. You'll suffer the consequences of uh, covenant disobedience. You'll be ejected from this, what should we call it, a treaty of works, covenant of works. And so what was, the, what was the outcome for that first human being? And what is the outcome for Israel, this, this other Adam in treaty with God? Well, as soon as you start turning pages here after our, our text, you go into Joshua 7, you go into Judges, the whole book, my word, and you keep turning your pages through Samuel, through Kings, you come to the end, and what do you see? It's one long slide towards ejection. It's a, it's a sad story of the weakness of people to keep the treaty. And if Israel is humanity in miniature, then Israel is you and Israel is me when we're left to ourselves. This is us in our weakness. The Apostle Paul summarized, summarizes how this disability has passed on to us when he says in Romans 3.20, he says, For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight. We are simply too weak. We cannot put ourselves in a right relationship with God based on what we do, no matter how hard we strive. Look at verse 28 of our text. Here, this applies all too well to us by nature. They are a nation void of counsel. There is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this they would discern their latter end. That we, by nature, are ignorant of the wisdom that enables us to choose the, the right means to the right end by, in the fear of the Lord. That's, we're, 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 that's strange to us. We're ignorant of that. And so this verse 5, this description of Israel, applies uh, too well to us as human beings. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. If you look at verse 15, those of you that are in Hebrew 1, this word yeshurun, it comes from yashar. What does yashar mean? Yashar, yeshurun. Exactly. Right? Yashar. Now, God calls his people yeshurun, the upright one. And yet what? What if God deals with his people according to their works? Look, what a, what a mercy. He calls, he calls Israel, he calls Jacob, whose name means trickster, he calls him the upright one. And yet what? When the test comes on, if you've been around horses or oxen, right? Horse, some, if he doesn't want to be saddled, watch out. Don't stand behind a horse. Or what, when, you put an, when you want to put a yoke on an ox to make it plow, if that ox isn't willing, too fat, it's been nicely fed in the stall, what? What does it say? Yeshurun kicked. This is us. We tend to kick against God. This is our natural reaction uh, in our flesh against God. We take his gifts, beautiful description of all the gifts God had given, and we twist them. Right? We take sex, we make it something twisted. We take money, we make it something that we lose sleep over. 
right? We take our academic life and we make it the point of orientation. for our, We have to justify our existence based on this next quiz or this next paper. That becomes everything. We get a B and it's the end of the world, right? This is, we, we, we twist God's goods and we make them into God's. We take other people, instead of enjoying them, instead of serving them, we turn them into pieces to serve ourselves. We're twisted. And verse 18 describes us all too well, that we tend to forget God. And this text talks about God rewarding according to works, and what would that be for us? Lex talionis, it would be, as he says in verse 22, that God's anger would burn us down to Sheol. Verse 23, that we would experience disaster. Verse 24, plague, pestilence. Verse 25 uses two merisms, these expressions of completeness, to say that no one would escape. The Lord Jesus uses similar language to verse 26 when he says that he would cut them into pieces and put them in a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Even Aaron, even Moses... My word, at the end of our text, even Moses cannot enter the promised land based on his performance. He fails. He's too weak. And such is the case with us, that we cannot achieve an acceptance with God. But there is a second theme in the symphony, praise the Lord, in um, Moses' song here. And it's similar to Galatians 2.16. And the negative is we know that a person's not justified by, by the works of the law, okay, we are weak, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. So here, there, this song is pointing to us that there is something better than performance-based religion. There is an acceptance with God based on the performance of another, and that is our great and powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 36. Here it's pointing us towards the gospel, that when we're weak, he's strong. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. Right? What is the sinner's prayer? What do you pray to be saved? You pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I am helpless unless you have mercy on me. And how does God save you? God saves you through the strong sufferings of his own son. Who what? Who took the sword for you. Who took the arrows for you. Who took the teeth for you described here. Who took the venom for you. He is the one who took the burning anger of God on himself as he suffered in your place. God saves you by his sufferings. God saves you by his strong obedience as well. He becomes the last Adam who actually keeps the stipulations of the covenant. He, he obeys and he earns the rewards promised. He becomes the new Israel. And so look at verse 10. So where does, where does Jesus start his ministry? He starts in the howling waste, as we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. That he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. But this New Israel, our representative, passes successfully the test and he earns covenant blessings for us. And he earns covenant blessings that can never be taken away from us. Even as Old Testament Israel, as individuals, are saved by grace through faith in the Messiah to come, even so us, we are saved 
through faith in Christ. And now we can take these precious images of God and we can take them and we can hold them to our hearts with all our strength and draw all comfort possible from these wonderful images because he will never leave us even when our performance wanes, even when our weakness shows itself. He will never forsake us and he will never leave us. And so as I close, let me draw your attention to two of the images here that God is strong and that God is committed to your welfare. First look at verse 18. Here Moses uses both the male and the female images for begetting. He speaks about the rock that bore you or fathered you and the God who gave you birth. We live in an age, obviously, of extraordinary gender confusion. It goes without saying. It's just amazing how confused we are about a gender but let us not hyper-react to that. Let us not say that the Bible uses exclusively masculine imagery in speaking of God, because this is very clearly feminine imagery, right? Why do you love your mother? Why do you honor your mother? Well, one of the reasons you do is to use the graphic language of 18b. She writhed in labor to, give you, to bring you into this world. That's what she did for you. And is there a more tender image than a mother, the care of a mother? Brothers, sisters, this text is telling us that God is strong for you and God is more caring for your soul and for your situation than, than your mother ever was or ever could possibly be. That's how tender his care for you is. And then look at verse 11. Here's a second image, another mother-like image here about the eagle, right? It may imply there's some flying lessons, kind of they're kind of pushing out of the eyrie, I'm not sure, be that as it may, but it does explicitly say that she catches her young, one, young ones on, your, on her pinions, bearing them along. What a beautiful, tender image. Do you remember in the Lord of the Rings? When the, when the terrible situation comes on, who saves the day? It's the eagles. The eagles come in and save the day, Right? And at times, you may feel like you're at the end of it all. You may feel that you are plummeting down towards disaster. You may feel that you are falling and falling, and you're not sure what's going to happen. Right? But God says that he is there for you, even now, even if you don't feel it, that you are, he has his pinions under you, and he will safely see you to a good destination. As verse 4 says it, he is for you the rock. (laughs) He is dependable and unshakable for you. He is a God who is perfect, it says. His ways are justice. He will do what is right for you infallibly. He is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He will provide for you. He will suckle you. He will cause all things to work together for your welfare infallibly. Would you join me with me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Lord, as verse 3 tells us, we are to, to proclaim the name of the Lord and to ascribe greatness to you, our God. Lord, we thank you for giving us food, drink, for providing for us, and we thank you for these wonderful promises that you will provide for us. Oh, Lord, strengthen our faith in what you've done for us in our Savior to reconcile us to yourself and strengthen our faith as we face all kinds of uncertainties of a hundred varieties. Be with us, Lord, 
and cause us to rejoice even in the midst of uncertainty and uh, fear. We bless you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. God's blessing on you all. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.